Thank you very much and good morning everyone. It's great to have a wonderful crowd here. This is terrific. Uh, it's a long time since I had a crowd like this to address, so I'm going to take the entire time. It's a politician, you know. So I'm going to give some brief introductions and uh, these folks are going to speak for maybe 15 minutes. We're going to have to try to have uh, time for some questions and answers uh, and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, I've got very long introductions and I'm not going to read them all because uh, we know they're all distinguished. I'll try to give you like the, uh, the, uh, the short version of the introductions here. Uh, first to my immediate right, I don't know why they put me to the far left, but uh, to the on my immediate right, we have Marianne Engelman Lotto from, uh, uh, she's a lecturer at the Yale Law School in Public Health and School and Forestry and Environmental Studies. She's a visiting professor at the Vermont Law School. Uh, she was the staff attorney for Earth Justice, where she focused on civil rights enforcement. She's been involved previously with the New York Lawyers for the Public Interest and the NAA, uh, NAACP Legal Defense Fund. She has a BA uh, from Cole, uh, Cornell, JD from University of California, Berkeley, and an MA in politics. So uh, uh, she's got a lot going here. Uh, uh, her publications excuse. <laughs> include No More Excuses, Building a Vision of Civil Rights Enforcement, and she will be uh, the second person to speak today. Um, we have Jeffrey Fagan to her right, who's the Isidore and Sevilla uh, Sulzbacher Professor of Law at Columbia and a professor of epidemiology, and also in the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia. Uh, his uh, emphasis has been on policing issues, and if you look them up on the internet, there is a lot there on everything from civil rights issues in Ferguson to uh, the New York City stop and frisk policy, which would be very interesting to hear from him on that since Michael Bloomberg is making such a play in the uh, presidential race. Don't get me started, David. I know, I know. We're all New Yorkers here, I so I'm just trying to, to avoid that. edge them on a little bit here. Uh, senior research scholar at uh, Yale Law School and has a PhD in policy science from SUNY at Buffalo. I'm from Syracuse, by the way, so we're avoiding snow here in Charlottesville. And then, certainly not uh, last but not least, uh, Vernice Miller-Travis, who spent some time in Charlottesville, and we've been comparing notes about our favorite restaurants. We didn't get to our favorite people. That comes later. Uh, one of the nation's leading experts in the issues of environmental justice has been all over the country uh, talking with people as a consultant and trying to help them understand uh, a concept which has been around for a long time but not, is not always embraced all that well in state houses around the country. That is environmental justice. She's worked with the EPA's uh, Agency on Urban Waters, the Chesapeake Bay and Near Ports Capacity Building Program, uh, has been involved with WE Act for Environmental Justice, uh, has a BA in Political Science at Columbia, where she has served at the Revson Fellow, as a Revson Fellow in Urban Planning. Uh, she worked for the uh, National Resources Defense Council uh, and was involved with grant making uh, with the Ford Foundation, and the, the, the group now is called Metropolitan, it's the Met Metropolitan Group, she's the Executive Vice President, they're a consulting group and they consult on all kinds of varieties of civil rights issues. So that's our distinguished panel today, and I think if I'm not mistaken, Vernice is starting out, so I I am. welcome to the stage.
Bernice. Thank you. So I just realized that um, though I was at Columbia years after him, I follow him on Twitter. And if you wanna, if you wanna get a, a deep immersion in sort of policing and social justice and racial justice, follow him on Twitter. Um, and um, it's really a, a wonderful thing. So you're you're one of my current heroes. Thank you. So I thought um, for this panel on civil rights violations and the social determinants of health, housing, neighborhoods, and the environment. I would um, just take us through for uh, just a very few minutes sort of the history of um, how this conversation came to be where it is now and then focus on some of the work that the, um, the nonprofit organization that I'm the co-founder of, We Act for Environmental Justice, on which Marion and I serve on the board together, sort of how we've combined all of these things that this, um, this panel is talking about, how we do that work, and how long we have been doing that work for 32 years in this space. So um, first I would start with, for me at least, my own journey um, in 1986. Um, I went to work at the United Church of Christ Commission for Racial Justice. At the time, the United Church of Christ was headquartered in New York City. It moved to Cleveland because they thought there were too many brown people in New York City. That is the truth. Um, and the church itself decided to do a special project on toxic injustice. Um, and the reason that the church decided to, uh, to do this project is because the member churches, particularly in the states of North Carolina and South Carolina, were um, calling with regularity to the national headquarters in New York to say that uh, hazardous waste landfill was being planned for their town, but nobody asked them. There was no public process, um, no notices went out. All they knew is they saw trucks and the trucks were starting to clear trees and land to create a hazardous waste landfill, and, and, or a hazardous waste incinerator, or other such um, adverse environmental facilities. And so they kept calling the church and saying, you know, can you help us, what, what, what can we do? And so the church decided to, um, out of their own funds, to fund this research project, a special project on toxic injustice. And, um, um, I had met the deputy director of um, the UCC Commission for Racial Justice, a civil rights leader named Reverend Ben Chavis. Um, I had met him uh, when he uh, left prison. He had been uh, wrongfully imprisoned in the state of North Carolina for um, inciting violence. He was actually trying to register black folks in Wilmington, North Carolina, and trying to get them involved in the local politics of their city. Um, they, uh, uh, the state of North Carolina and the city of Wilmington claimed that he was inciting violence and arrested him and convicted him, and he spent four four years in prison, eventually was let out. When he got out of prison, while he was in prison, he got his Masters of Divinity, but he came to finish um, his PhD, his Doctor of Divinity at Union Theological Seminary, which was across the street from the college that I went to, Barnard College. And so we invited Ben to campus to speak, um, to talk to us students, and um, I stayed in touch with him for, um, for, from then on. So he came to speak to campus probably in about 1982. I called him every six months from 1982 to 1986 to say he should hire me because I was the greatest thing since sliced bread in civil rights um, of my generation, right? And eventually one day he actually said, well, you know, we're about to do the special project on toxic injustice. You should come in and meet our research director, Charles Lee, and see if you two hit it off and see if this is something you would want to do. Um, I thought I knew everything there was to know about civil rights at the time as a student and a student of the field, um, but toxic and injustice are two words that I had never heard linked together. So I go, I meet with Charles Lee, and he explains this hypothesis of what's going on in North Carolina and South Carolina, and the church wants to look at 
is there, um, is there something going on in North Carolina and South Carolina that are unique to the Southeast region? Is this a national phenomenon where people of color seem to be the target and locus for the siting of unwanted local land uses and hazardous facilities. And so that was, our, that was our hypothesis. I was hired as the research assistant, and it was my job to take EPA's database at the time. So this was EPA's national priorities list. The national priorities list, how many people know what the NPL is, the national priorities list? So the National Priorities List is a list that the Environmental Protection Agency keeps of hazardous waste sites that are ranked under their hazardous waste ranking system to determine that they pose imminent threat to human health and the environment and that EPA and its contractors need to go in and clean up the waste that's in their sites so that they, they are no longer a threat to public health. So we took that list, the NPL list from 1984 to 1986, and it was my job to correlate where all the sites, the hazardous waste sites on that list, also known as Superfund sites, where they were located, and what was the racial composition of the zip codes in which those sites were located, right? So we wanted to see, is there a correlation between those things? Now, at that time, only the U.S. Department of Defense and um, the, the main um, uh, sort of company that, that does um, geographic information uh, systems analysis, those were the only two entities that had GIS, access to GIS. Even universities didn't have access to GIS at the time. So I had a six-foot table in the conference room I had a map of the United States broken out by county, and I would correlate and mark by hand where those sites were, and then I would develop the color coding system of how many sites were in each, um, in each zip code, and the redder it was, the more sites there were, and the redder it was, the more people of color that lived in proximity. So then I developed this national map. It took me six months to do that data. For those of you who are familiar with GIS, how long would it take you to develop that data now? How long? Would you say? Uh, maybe 30 minutes if you know what you're doing, uh, an hour if you don't know what you're doing, right? But it certainly would not take you six months. And then I took that map and I gave it to a friend of mine who was a graphic artist and I had her create what would become the cover of our report which we published in 1987, Toxic Waste and Race in the United States, which was the first report to look at the relationship between race and hazardous waste in the United States. Now, um, an anecdote that I always find really um, helpful and I share with people whenever I tell this story. So my grandmother was a nurse. All of my grandmother's sisters were nurses. My mother was a nurse. So I come from a public health family and a public health background. And I said to my grandmother at the time, oh my God, Grandma, you wouldn't believe this incredible research. This is like mind boggling. This is going to change the world as we know it. And my grandmother says, how much money did the UCC spend on this report? And I said, I think we spent about $200,000, $250,000. She said, I am so glad I do not belong to the United Church of Christ. And I said, Grandma, how could you say such a thing? And she said, well, I'm just wondering why they spent so much money to document something that every black person in America knows to be true. Wherever we live, that's where all the adverse land uses are. If you're trying to find the landfill, find out where the black people are. If you're trying to find where the municipal dump is, find out where the black people are. If you're trying to find out where the factories and the processing plants are, find out where the black people are. So that's true, where black folk are the dominant population, but in the Southwest and in parts of the country where Latinos are the dominant population, that's their reality. In parts of the country where indigenous people are the majority of the population, that's their reality. In parts of the country where um, Asian and Pacific Islander folks are, that's their reality. Every 
place in the United States of America where people of color live, no matter how isolated that local population may be and how few people of color may be there, you can find the adverse environmental impacts exactly correlated one-to-one -one with where those people are. So I'm, we're, we're, I'm rolling out this data. I'm looking at these databases. I'm up to my eyeballs and data analysis, and it hits me. The one class that I almost failed in college, statistics, mm -hmm. something comes back from the, you know, the depths of my cranium, um, from statistics, comes forward and says, this is not random, right? The degree of statistical analysis that we ran. So we had a separate data analysis firm that was running the data that I was finding that was running that data um, to tell us um, deeper and deeper analytics. We looked at 164 social variables, including race, level of educational attainment, um, uh, uh, land ownership, renter status, value of land, level of educational attainment, per capita income, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 164 social variables, race being one of them. Race proved to be the most statistically significant indicator in where these sites were located. This is just one universe of sites we're looking at, though, right? We're only looking at the most hazardous, the most dangerous sites, those on the national priorities list, Superfund sites. We're not looking at impaired water bodies. We're not looking at sources of particulate pollution. We're not looking at other categories of hazardous waste or waste sites, just had Superfund sites. And if you lay all that other data on top of the data that we published in 1987, you see a harrowing set of circumstances for communities of color, low-income communities, immigrant communities, tribal communities across these United States. Living in close proximity to those sources of contamination and pollution changes your physiology, it affects your health in fundamental ways, and it shortens your life expectancy. How do I know that? Because while we were doing this research, um, it was suggested that I go and meet with some folk in my own neighborhood where I lived in New York, in West Harlem, who were building this independent political organization. And I said, yeah, but they're trying to you know, shake up the Democratic Party, and I don't want any parts of the Democratic Party in New York City. And they just kept hounding me, you got to go, you got to go. One night, I finally go to the meeting, late coming from my research. I show up at this meeting. I open the door. I sit down. There's like 100 people in the room, and they're talking about the North River Sewage Treatment Plant that is about to be built on the Hudson River waterfront in the very community in which I lived where I was born, where I was raised, where I grew up, where I went to college, where I went to graduate school. Everything was happening right on my doorstep. I didn't see it. I didn't perceive it. I did not understand that it was going on. And it hit me like a brick. Oh my god. I'm doing this research to look at the environmental threats that communities of color are facing in other parts of the United States, and it's unfolding right here on my doorstep where I live. How could I not have seen this? How could I not have seen this? Because I was looking at hazardous waste sites. I wasn't looking at environmental infrastructure. I wasn't looking at a sewage treatment plant built to treat 180 million gallons of raw sewage on a daily basis. The entire um, wastewater sewage collection system for the entire west side of Manhattan. I wasn't looking at that. I was looking at hazardous waste sites. And when I tilted my head up a little bit, I realized that the threat was right there in my, in, in my own front door. So we published this report. It changes the national conversation, or it introduces into the national conversation that there is another aspect of racism that we have not been looking at and we hardly ever talk about, 
the, the relationship between local land use and zoning and the racist predicate of lo local land use and zoning that allows the continual dismantling of communities of color and the continual threat to the lives of people of color based on who controls that local land use process. Here in Charlottesville, that process allowed for the erasure of Vinegar Hill, right? A historic African-American community here in Charlottesville that we now know because we have history. We have some churches and a few structures still left, but for all intents and purposes, that community has been disappeared. In Richmond, Virginia, every time you drive on 95 and you're getting near Virginia, Richmond and then you're driving through Richmond, you are driving through what used to be a thriving African-American community of homeowners that was utterly destroyed to build 95 South and 95 North as it came through Virginia. I could tell you stories like that around the United States, and I have collected those stories from around the United States, but those stories and the voices of those people in those communities then built and formed a social movement in the United States called the Environmental Justice Movement. Um, in 1988, we um, founded West Harlem Environmental Action. In 1990, the University of Michigan held a conference on race and the incidence of environmental hazards. I want to read to you the definition of environmental justice um, developed by Dr. Bunyan Bryant, who led the environmental advocacy program at the University of Michigan. It used to be called the School of Natural Resources. It has a new name now. SRE, I think it's called, and Bunyan defined environmental justice as referring to those cultural norms and values, regulations, behaviors, policies, and decisions to support sustainable communities where people can interact with confidence that their environment is safe, nurturing, and productive. Environmental justice is served when people realize their highest potential without experiencing the isms. Environmental justice is supported by decent paying and safe jobs, quality schools and recreation, affordable housing, adequate health care, personal empowerment, and communities free of violence, drugs, and poverty. These are communities where both cultural and biological diversity and respect are respected and highly revered and where distributive justice prevails. So when we talk about environmental justice, that's what we mean, right? The intersection of all these issues, but also to be free of the oppression of those issues is to live in a state of environmental justice, which very few communities of color, low-income communities, or immigrant communities experience. In 1991, um, people of color and their allies from all over the United States came together to host the first National People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit, where we laid out our vision of what environmental justice looks like, articulated in the 17 principles of environmental justice. In 1992, EPA established their Office on Environmental Equity, which would become the Office of Environmental Justice. In 1994, President Clinton signed the Executive Order on Environmental Justice, which is legally predicated on the National Environmental Policy Act and Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. I need to say something about Title VI. Dana mentioned it in her opening remarks, but I need to say something about it. So the Executive Order says that all federal agencies must look at their programs and policies to ensure that in meeting their missions, they are not doing so in a way that creates adverse impact or discrimination against people, protected groups of people as defined by the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and they surely cannot use federal dollars 
in a way that's going to create discriminatory impact, whether intended or not. You should ask Professor Matthew, and I hope she will find the opportunity at some point in this conference to tell you about the year and a half that she spent at the Environmental Protection Agency trying to get the Office of Civil Rights at EPA to understand, one, what does the Civil Rights Act of 1964 say we must do as a federal agency, and how should we do it? And how long ago do you think she did that? How long ago? Four years ago. Four years. She was there trying to get the Environmental Protection Agency to realize that they had independent statutory authority under the Civil Rights Act, separate and apart from the legion of environmental regulations and the federal environmental framework. They, to this day, don't cruelly understand that, don't recognize it, and reject it, which is why most states do not have a fully formed environmental enforcement process within their state environmental agencies because EPA has not told them they had to, because EPA does not understand they have to do it themselves. And I am needing to, to wrap it up. Um, so You're on a roll. I am on a roll. Um, but I just want folks to know that in the environmental justice space, we have been trying to do two things. We have been trying to make sure that people receive equal protection under the, the federal um, uh, panoply of environmental laws and regulations, and that people are, re are entitled to equal protection before the law, and that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 demands and requires that they not be discriminated against. That's what we have been doing these past 35 years, and we're just now starting to make some headway until this administration. They will, they will go away. Um, so, uh, I am a little nervous about coming after Vernice, um, but hopefully there's a flow and, and I, will, uh, I will follow up. As Vernice described, the environmental justice movement is often described as including uh, distributive justice, recognizing and addressing the inequalities on the basis of race and class in the distribution of both environmental benefits, like access to parks, and environmental burdens, like living in proximity to Superfund sites. Um, also procedural justice, and this was written about in, in the paper, the, the say, the control over your future, having a say, a meaningful participation for dis formerly disenfranchised communities and disenfranchised communities today, and also substantive justice, the access to clean air, clean water, and all three of those pieces are central to environmental <laughs> justice. Fundamentally, as today's topic has, uh, has suggested, um, environmental justice echoes the themes of today in that uh, the decisions that are involved in the built environment and the natural environment um, have included and, and perpetuated oppression and subordination. And that we, that environmental justice seeks to address the devaluation of people of color and low-income people. Um, David Pello has written in his work on developing a critical environmental justice studies that marginalized human, ha human populations are treated, if not viewed, as inferior and less valuable to society than others. And, and, the, and the, the basic idea of environmental justice is to challenge that view, to make change with community-based transformation. So I feel like 
uh, I've gone whole circle. Because I started my career at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund working on what we called access to health care and disparities in health status. So there's something quite um, depressing and wonderful at the same time uh, to be part of this. And, and even at that time, the courts were sort of uh, I can't say this in the South, but going South. Um, uh, and we were worried about this notion that you go to court and you get a, a judge to somehow align the law with social justice and knew that was not the right theory of change. And so as far back as 1989, when we were starting this access to health care or health justice program, we brought together people from the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, Meharry Medical College, Johns Hopkins, community folks to say, what is the theory of change? What is uh, a, an agenda for uh, civil rights in the healthcare area. So I do feel like uh, this is a great continuation of that dialogue. Um, currently, I spend time it, at Yale and at Vermont Law School, and the very nature, the very reason I'm traveling down the road burning carbon every day is to bring together an interdisciplinary group of faculty and students to work across disciplines on issues of environmental justice. So uh, working with communities through community-based participatory research, doing health monitoring, engaging communities, getting direction from communities, and then developing advocacy strategies, including civil rights strategies, that will respond, that take our direction from the community. So we can, we can talk more about that. Um, okay, that was what that was about. Oh, I should go back for a sec. Because this started late, I didn't do this. So I just want to say who these folks were. We're going to get back to both of them. On the left-hand side, that is uh, Esther Calhoun, a resident of Uniontown, Alabama, and one of my clients and friends and partners, I'm proud to say. She is walking in a cemetery where her loved ones are buried, which is right next to a mound of coal ash in Uniontown, Alabama, that was put in Arrowhead Landfill, and I'm going to talk more about that. And on the right is Naima Muhammad, the Executive Director of the North Carolina Environmental Justice Network. These networks were developed out of the effort that Vernice talked about in the 1990s, the Ford Foundation, Vernice when she was there, and others funded groups across the country to develop into networks to have their imprint on social transformation in this area. And some of them still exist, and, and uh, the North Carolina EJ Network is one of them. And this is Naima and, um, and other folks in the North Carolina EJ Network in a group called REACH and their partners, Waterkeeper Alliance, going to DC and demanding that EPA respond to their petition, their, their civil rights complaint, which EPA eventually did. Um, inadequately, but they did. Um, I want to say just something that is, is probably, doesn't need to be said in this law school, but the goals of legal action are not only getting a court to uh, go your way, right? This is not about, especially in our time, this is not about will a court align the law with social justice. Of, of course, I don't need to say also that every legal action has to be meritorious and non-frivolous. But um, having said that, 
Uh, the goals of legal action are to lift up, to elevate the narrative of the community. And often when racial justice is invisible, or racial injustice, or people are holding in that stress because the law is not talking about racial injustice, we have to articulate that narrative and Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 for all of the frailties that you heard about is a mechanism for articulating that discrimination is what's going on here. The law can create political space. Uh, Vernice mentioned NEPA, uh, National Environmental Policy Act. Um, that is a mechanism for creating political space for voice. Uh, the law can build a record, can support community-based movements. And so when I talk about using civil rights or that partnership that was discussed earlier, it is about using the law in all of these ways to make uh, community-based change. And I just wanted to put on here, uh, Vernice mentioned the principles of environmental justice. There are many of them, there are 17, right? But, um, but at core, uh, the fundamental right to self-determination, the fundamental right to participate in equal partners, as equal partners in all mechanisms of decision-making, not only for government, but for me as a technical assistance provider. Right? That is what I do. I, I'm a technical assistance provider. Or that is what scientists do. It is the community that should be driving. The community that has to have, now the, the, I'm using the community as if it's monolithic. It's not. So we could talk more about that. But it is the people who are the stakeholders that should be driving and we are partners in that effort. Um, Vernice already talked about the fact that environmental justice issues are a broad range of issues. They're not just a particular decision about the built or national environment, so I won't spend a lot of time on that. I want to highlight very quickly these three situations um, and share experiences I've had the honor of hearing about and seeing on the ground that fuel this movement. Um, so uh, this is Uniontown, Alabama, it's 2,000 people. Uh, the, the community is 87 to 90% African American. Um, it, the per capita income is about $10,000. Um, there are multiple sources of pollution, not just uh, Arrowhead Landfill. Arrowhead Landfill, and this is actually significant, we could talk more about this, is in an unincorporated area on the side of town. So when people invest in the community, they're investing in the municipality. This is not the place that has the street lights, et cetera. Um, County Road 1 goes to the south of Union of uh, Arrowhead Landfill. Arrowhead Landfill is one of the biggest landfills it takes in the state. It takes uh, it, municipal solid waste from all across the eastern seaboard uh, through, uh, through the Mississippi, 33 states, takes our waste. And it's all dumped. It's, it's important to note it's a municipal yes. solid waste landfill. That's a really important point to just lodge in your head. That's right, because what I'm going to show you on the left there is a pile of coal ash. A pile of coal ash. And that coal ash was shipped 300, 350 miles across state lines from Tennessee when there was a coal ash impoundment that broke, creating a Superfund site because under Superfund law, coal ash is considered hazardous. But under RICRA, the solid waste law, it is not considered hazardous. So. They piled up the coal ash in, in predominantly white, middle-class Kingston, Tennessee, with their hazmat suits and everything, put it on, on train cars, shipped it 300 to 350 miles uh, into Little Uniontown, dumped it with coal ash going through the air, and unloaded those, coal, those train cars with no hazmat suits, because suddenly, miraculously, in Uniontown, in the municipal solid waste facility, it is no longer hazardous. And that message that goes to people in the community where they had seen pictures of people in predominantly white Kingston 
with hazmat suits handling the very same stuff that comes into their community. That message was not lost, that their lives were not viewed as valuable as the people in Kingston. This is an aerial view of the landfill uh, trucks. This is, uh, you know, we say, oh, it must be, if it complies with RICRA, it must be safe. You can see the torn lining. This is uh, uh, Bill and Annette Gibbs in front of their home. Oh wait, I wanted to go back, sorry, I should have. Uh, I just wanted to show you in this picture, I wish I had sort of a, one of those red things. See on the left-hand side, those are all homes. Those are all people's homes, right across the street from that four million tons of coal ash. Okay, that's people's homes. Okay, so Mr. and Mrs. Gibbs uh, helped to start Black Belt Citizens Fighting for Health and Justice. They are fighting. And I had the honor of working with them and other residents. Uh, 35 residents uh, filed a civil rights complaint. Um, and I got involved in this community and can talk more about our partnership and the work in the community um, uh, if we have time in Q&A or over lunch or whatever. But they have been fighting not only the coal ash, but an antiquated sewage system, a, uh, a spray fields for human waste, um, all kinds of environmental problems. And this is um, Esther Calhoun. She was the second president of Black Belt Citizens fighting for health and justice. There is a phenomenal movie that was put out that's called Uniontown. I recommend it to you that's, that features um, Esther. One of the things that happened uh, when, that happens when doing this work is the landfill um, uh, sued Esther and the other leaders of Black Belt Citizens for uh, millions of dollars, um, 30, millions, $30 million dollars in a slap suit, which the ACLU defended them and, and we were able to get rid of. Um, this is the uh, Anne and uh, Reverend Ronald Smith from the Ashurst Bar Smith Community Organization. Um, in 2003, Ms. Smith and Phyllis Gosa um, uh, filed another civil rights complaint. It was accepted by EPA in 2005. It alleged that a landfill that was devastating their community, their community that their ancestors settled as uh, formerly enslaved persons right after the Civil War as part of uh, the Freedmen's Bureau, their community with black-owned land, uh, the Alabama Department of Environmental Management, in its wisdom, decided to, um, to site a landfill or approve the siting of a landfill right in the middle of black-owned land. And of course, they're devastated. They believe that there are uh, higher levels of cancer and asthma, and people have died of cancer or moved away. And um, so they filed this civil rights complaint, and uh, that is a picture uh, of, the, of the trash in the landfill. It's also enormous. Uh, this is a picture of land. The pink is black-owned land. The orange is where the landfill is. Um, so they filed this, uh, this complaint, and we've been representing them in a lawsuit for unreasonable delay because EPA, as Dana knows, uh, accepted the uh, complaint for investigation in 2005, and as of 2015, when we filed an unreasonable delay suit against EPA, they still had not decided anything about this case. And again, each case has a, a long history that I'm not, uh, not going into the details of because I only have three minutes. Um, but... Uh, but um, I want to, uh, but, but so we represent the community, not only on their individual complaints, helping to work together. Um, my 
Yale Hat is working with them on, on air monitoring and doing a health survey to get more documentation, and my law school hat is working with them on advocacy, and we're all in partnership. We have memorandums of understanding to do community-based participatory research all together as part of this sort of uh, mechanism for ground-up change. Uh, I just wanted to say that this is part of a larger, strategy, uh, larger problem of black land loss and wanted to quote Phyllis Gosa, who said about this, our family property means everything to us. My great-grandparents were slaves who came to the community in the 1800s as documented by the census. The land in the community is one of the most, the only tangible, valuable things that my great-grandparents as former slaves were able to pass on to their descendants. My parents lived through Jim Crow segregation in Alabama, the cradle of the Confederacy. Their land is all they had and all they could pass on to me and my siblings in terms of wealth. Um, she is quoted in a, a um, podcast that's coming out tomorrow on Hot House Earth, and if you want to hear more of her voice, uh, it, it lifts up her voice in the story in Tallahassee. Um, this partnership, people had gotten so disgusted by the failure of EPA to move on the complaint they had just given up, and this partnership and the litigation, for all the challenges of litigation, gave a little bit of a shot in the arm to the community, and the next time the permit was up for renewal, hundreds of people came to this permit uh, hearing. The third and final example I want to give is the North Carolina uh, a complaint that we filed, and the person that's standing in front of the American flag is Steve Wing. And I just want to give a shout out to Steve, who un uh, unfortunately passed away from cancer a couple years ago, uh, but not before he changed the world. And he, he was an epidemiologist, and he documented the environmental justice impacts of the swine uh, industry. And I only have one minute, so let me just go quickly. Uh, to do a civil rights complaint, um, we need to show that there are adverse impacts of whatever we're complaining about or the decision we're complaining about and that they disproportionately affect people on the basis of race or national origin or color. And Steve did years, decades of research on both of those elements with his, the people he mentored. Uh, this is a, a confined animal feeding operation. You see no animals outside. Though that's a lagoon, which is an open-air cesspool. Uh, in the case of pigs, pigs make three times as much uh, waste as, as humans. So without going into all the details, I want to show you this. Um, see the circle? Can you nod? you see the circle? That's a three-mile radius. And the pin, that green pin in the middle, is where Brittany Johnson lives. She lives within three miles of more than ten, this is not even including poultry facilities, ten swine facilities each of which has something like 3,000 pigs. So she's living within three miles of at least 10 facilities with open-air cesspools the size of towns of 10,000 people. Now you can imagine the health effects, the flies, the smell, the inability to enjoy uh, your property, etc. So very quickly, just a few pictures of the waste flying through the air. That's how it affects the water. Uh, um, this is uh, erosion of the spray field, I, I didn't describe, the waste comes down at the bottom of the, they're called barns, but indoor facilities, they're no big red barn, and then it goes out into these uh, cesspools, it settles there, and then they take the liquid, I know I'm out of time, but I'm going to just finish a couple minutes, um, they, ta they take the liquid and they spray it on fields, it's not, 
we can talk about whether the nutrient management side of it, but they spray it on fields. And when the wind comes, it has happened to me, it actually, uh, for good or for bad, happened to the uh, EPA investigators who came to town with us. Um, <laughs> you literally get covered with waste, but it's terrible for all humor aside, and I don't have very much of it. Um, so this is, uh, this is erosion of spray fields, and you can see that waste going out to Stocking Head Creek which is in the corner there. So you can imagine what is happening to the waterways that people, uh, that people rely on. And uh, this is flooding um, during the hurricane. This is all just right in, in the way of uh, hurricanes. Uh, the water pollution, the groundwater pollution, the drinking water pollution, the air pollution, which is unregulated. Um, these are big ventilator fans, the poultry industry, all the chickens would die of asphyxiation. These are some of the chemical effects. Um, I, I should have warned you, sorry, I'll move fast, but this is how they dispose of dead animals. This is a sacred space talking about uh, not valuing uh, people's lives and also people's, um, what is sacred to people. This is the work Steve did and, and Jill Johnston, who's at USC, uh, University of Southern California, uh, the, the work that they did to relate the kind of work that uh, Vernice was talking about, relate where these facilities are, which is the black dots, that's not even taking account of the size of the facilities, and race. And you can't even see how many people of color live in Duplin County, but uh, there is a relationship, a very strong relationship between where facilities are located and race and national origin. Actually, the strongest correlation was uh, with Native Americans, but it's uh, significant with Latinos and um, and African-Americans. This is, uh, when EPA didn't respond, we took the issue to EPA. Um, they wrote, it before the Obama administration left office, uh, they came down, they did an investigation, they did not make a finding of discrimination, which they should have made, but they did issue a letter of concern. We went into alternative dispute resolution and came out with a settlement agreement that is incremental at best, but it is something, again, we could talk more about that, and, and this is the beauty of it, to, the honor for me to be part of this community. When you go to the North Carolina Environmental Justice Network Summit and you stand hand in hand with scientists and government folks and, and community folks saying, uh, I am a, a link in the chain and a link in the chain will not be broken here. It is a sacred oath and we are all working together. I just wanna say one more thing about the use of civil rights lawyer. I'm gonna miss that, but there are opportunities for real change. And um, so the one thing I wanna end on is a, a positive note, which is all of this work to make really systematic change um, and, and put information in the hands of communities so that they can advocate uh, with us uh, as support. Um, one of the most exciting things is the development of these environmental justice mapping tools. And it was mentioned before, this is a picture of Cal EnviroScreen. Um, what you see is you can identify where are the communities of color and you can identify what are uh, the cumulative impacts of many um, environmental health and demographic indica uh, indicators of health. And this information is now being used in government decision making, but it's not just in California. This is Washington State, which used money from the CDC tracker program to do something very similar that can be used in decision making and used in advocacy by communities. And there are more than 20 states that are using this. So thank you very much.
I just want to add for context while we're coming with our next speaker, North Carolina has approximately 11.5 million people and 19 million hogs also live in. So there's more pigs than there are people in North Carolina, and they produce a lot of waste. Okay, Dr. Fagan, and I'm sorry that I keep holding signs up, but that's my role is to try to be the traffic uh, cop here. I know that traffic cop, we shouldn't be talking about traffic cops here. Yeah, they're bad. Yeah, okay. Okay, so uh, these two are a tough act to follow. Uh, and um, more seriously, um, I hope you all aren't very hungry because we're going to run over a little bit. Um, and uh, the work that we're doing is, I think, at a much earlier stage in the development of a body of scientific knowledge about the harms of uh, policing and the capacity of police working under the color of law to produce some significant harms, particularly at children, but for the most part, particular harms that are particularly focused on black and Latino communities. So let me, let me take this from the top. Uh, this thing works, I assume? Marian? I didn't use, uh, use you, the... You just use the pad? Yeah. Okay. Well, this works. Um, so this is a cartoon that basically shows the state of mind of your average police, police department, police officer, in thinking yeah. about... Um, uh, the way that Terry versus Ohio works, which is the officer has reasonable suspicion that crime is afoot, meaning it's either just happened, it's in the process of happening, or it's imminent. That's a big space in which police officers can make that decision. When you load it on top of their, um, their everyday experience, what they're trained on, what their biases lead them to, and what their cultural reinforces every day, this is where they, they attach suspicion. I'll show a little bit of data that's gonna show how, in fact, that doesn't happen neutrally or randomly, as Vernice says. Uh, it's quite systematic. By the way, everything that Vernice said about where the bad stuff happens, um, where the police are, it's the same thing. That's where, the, where they're focused, that's where the bad stuff happens. Except in our case, it's a combination of social and psychological harm. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, now, just at the low end, this is what we see. This is all just coming out actually in New York. It was just, it was just uh, re revealed, I guess, about a few days ago, maybe a week ago, about the jaywalking summons activity. 90% are people of color who get jaywalking. I grew up in New York. I jaywalked every day of my life. In order for me to get to my car, I have to jaywalk. It's in the Constitution. It's in the Constitution. It is. It's, in, it's on my birth certificate, actually. Um, so, but it's not just here. It's Jacksonville, Florida. It's every city in the country. This is only now becoming um, an issue. We all know about all the harassment of everyday activities that's focused by the police and by law generally on black people in particular, but also on other people of color. This is walking while black. Um, so this is one end. This is the everyday end. Uh, here's the other end. And the other end is police killings. And I'm going to talk about everything that starts from the beginning to the end. And this is just a story that was in the Times last week, earlier this week, over the weekend, I think, about two brothers and their experience with the police under the stop and frisk regime in New York. The first one, the younger brother, he gets killed. The older brother, so the older brother gets killed. The younger brother lives in the shadow of that death at the hands of the police. He internalizes it. The family's a wreck. He's traumatized. And trauma is the thread that I want to talk about through all of this. He's traumatized, his life falls apart, he winds up in a fatal encounter with the police himself. Imagine the trauma in the family from the first killing. The first killing was the cops thought the guy had a gun. This is a kid, they thought he had a gun, they mistook his hairbrush for a gun. 
Now, this happens all the time. Uh, they make mistakes. Uh, if you read Jennifer Eberhardt's work, that mistake is heavily racialized. They don't make the same mistakes. Cops don't make the same mistakes with, with white folks. They make it with folks of color. And they make it the most with black folks, they make it the, make it the least with white folks, and in the middle, as in every other uh, um, indicia of, of, of deprivation, they do it with Latinos. Okay, so this is the deep end. So we're gonna go talk about everything from the front end to the deep end pretty fast. So it all happens under the regime of what we call the new policing. New policing is something that evolved during the 1980s. Uh, uh, Commissioner Bratton, in, uh, first in Boston, then in the city of New York, later in Los Angeles, um, created this model that has these three components. Uh, we need not go into them, they're pretty straightforward. Uh, everywhere where Bratton went, by the way, there was a civil rights lawsuit that was successful. So he created, he created the Floyd regime in New York that wound up in a civil rights trial. Uh, it was one of the only civil rights trials that actually happened. Everything else was settled in a consent decree. There was a consent decree uh, from his, in, in Los Angeles where he was practicing as commissioner for many years as well. Um, so this is the new policing. This is the regime that leads to, under the color or under the umbrella of Terry v. Ohio, which essentially is a standardless rule for police officers about when they can conduct the common law, exercise their common law right of inquiry to stop somebody, and then once you stop them, there's a progression of steps that they go through during that, those interactions, and those steps lead to increasingly, increasing involvement hands-on and sometimes uh, hands in pockets, sometimes hands in backpacks, et cetera. Uh, it's a case that just came up about uh, police officers saw two brothers who were walking around with a backpack from, uh, from the film Frozen. And uh, the cop said, I thought it was kind of heavy. He was walking like it was a heavy backpack. I thought he had a gun. So he stops them, he searches the backpack, completely unconstitutional search, maybe. Maybe. Uh, he, the kid says, why are you searching my backpack? There's an interaction. The interaction goes south. The kid winds up on the ground. The cop stomps on the backpack. Then he stomps on the kid's back. The kid's in the hospital, et cetera, et cetera. These are the things that happen every day under this policing regime. So imagine the harm psychologically and emotionally that accrues to that kid to the crews, to the kids who witness this on a daily basis, and you'll see some of the data that actually is produced by that. So this is the stop regime. Just to, I'm going to whiz through this real fast. This is the New York City stop regime. Uh, David mentioned that Mayor Bloomberg is coming. Mayor, this is a really interesting story. I get phone calls every day about this because I was the expert for the plaintiffs in the civil rights trial under Floyd. Uh, does this thing have a? Nope, it doesn't. Okay. Anyway, if you go back to the peak. And you go back from the 685 to the 532. So basically, by the way, we did a little calculator back of the envelope. 80% of all the young men between the ages of 18, 16, and 24, 80% of young black males were stopped one or more times during that one year. That's astonishing. We did a, do a little, you know, it was a little back of, the, back of the envelope because the data aren't completely transparent. Uh, the, ratio, the rate for Latinos was 38%. The, ratio, the rate for white folks was 10%, white kids. That's pretty harsh. Anyway, Bloomberg denies that anything that happened in court led to that decline. Uh, that's a long story. But for those of you who took Civ Pro and stayed awake, uh, we got class certs right in the middle of that thing where it says 532. And immediately they knew they were going to lose. They changed their, their habits. Uh, and Bloomberg says, oh, no, 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 I saw the light. I had hurt people's feelings. He never said, by the way, if you're thinking of voting for Bloomberg, he never once said, sorry. I was wrong on the merits. That's right. He said, I'm sorry I hurt your feelings. <laughs> Fuck it. 
is this is a trial that went on with Marianne's colleagues. I was worked for LDF. Uh, they were they were one of the people who brought the case. Uh, this went on from 2008 to 2013. There's an order in effect. We're monitoring the order. I'm working for the plaintiff still and monitoring on that. And uh, it's you know there's a limitation of law, and I want to get to that at the very end because there's just so much that law can do. And I think that's something to bear in mind. Anyway, so you can just see they're much more careful with white people. On the left side, they frisk white people less often. Uh, on the other hand, when they do frisk them, they get it right almost twice as much. That's really quite amazing, which means they're very careful. They're either very careful with white folks or they're very promiscuous with black folks, one of the two. Um, and um, it's not hard to see the evidence. Anyway, so this is the new regime in practice. And when you get into the data and you actually talk to kids, stuff that came out in our trial, comes out in ethnographic studies, uh, think about the name Rod Brunson, who's done astonishing ethnographic work with young kids in East St. Louis talking about their experiences with the police under these regimes. These are the kinds of things that come out. Um, my colleague Bernard Harcourt wrote a really fascinating paper about a body cavity strip search that happened on the side of the road by police officers. I believe actually the research site was Richmond, although they kept it anonymous, but I'm pretty sure it was Richmond. Um, and they search the guy and they cut him, he's naked on the side of the road and they search him and they get back in the car and there happened to be a research kid, grad student, in the car and so the cop turns around and he says to the kid's face, I know he had the drugs, even though he never found them. So the guy's naked, where's the drugs? And he did a cavity search. So this is kind of the thinking that's infiltrated the culture under this regime which rewards and if not celebrates it. Okay, so let's get into the harms. We did surveys of kids in New York. We surveyed 1,250 kids. We interviewed them twice over a one-year period. We asked them a whole series of questions. How were you treated by the police? What were you doing? How many times have you been stopped, et cetera, et cetera. And here, we asked them the scale on the bottom, reported stop intrusion, is everything from the most polite intervention to a strip search or you get down on the street and you know, spread your hands on the top of the car or on the sidewalk. And to make a long story short, um, we asked them two different measures, standardized um, um, psychiatric and mental health measures. These come straight out. You'll see these in any kind of study. Uh, the one on the right is PTSD study, the same things that they give to combat veterans, uh, to people who survived earthquakes and floods and fires, uh, and these, but also for combat veterans. So you can see that as, on the right side, as stop intrusion gets more severe, the level of PTSD goes up. It's a pretty damning graph. Uh, the same thing on the left side. We used a very simple measure of anxiety. How, how anxious are you? So in our survey, where we actually talk to kids, uh, the more, worse the stop intrusion, uh, the higher the rates of anxiety. We also got a positive rate, uh, we don't show it here, for hostility and for depression. So you can imagine the baggage. Most of these stops are, it's 58% it's, it's, uh, black kids, uh, black young men, it's mostly 16 to 24. 58% black, 29% uh, Latino. Uh, I think that comes out to about the right numbers. Um, and so this is who we're talking about. When we break this down by race, what's interesting is white kids who were stopped under the same regimes have the same outcomes. But it's all happening to black kids. So it's kind of a universal effect. And you can see that the decisions about how to allocate the resource of policing is producing an entire generation of kids who are harmed. Okay, 
Um, these are the neighborhoods where this stuff is happening. So this is a survey that's done by the health department. This is the New York City Health Department. The darker the neighborhood, the higher the rates of psychological distress. They use the same kinds of measures that we do. These are epidemiologists who are very, very talented. Uh, Abigail Sewell, uh, who is the lead investigator in this, who's now a professor, I think, at the University of Georgia, uh, did a lot of this work. But it turns out, if you actually draw a map in New York, and here we get into the same things that Vernice talked about and Marianne talked about, um, uh, those neighborhoods, the darker the color of the neighborhood, the poorer, the more minority, the higher the school dropout rate, the higher the unemployment rate, the higher the uh, suicide rate, um, every single dimension of um, deprivation, economic, social, and psychological deprivation is in the very same neighborhoods and the psychological deprivation piles on top of that. So the, her, her study is the, basically the effects of policing on mental health of a random sample of New Yorkers. Ours was a stratified random sample, hers was a sample. The two studies absolutely converge. Okay, um, and if anybody wants me to name the neighborhoods, I can, but the dark one um, up towards the top, that's a whole strip of neighborhoods through the Bronx. Uh, and on the west side, that dark strip is where Pier 84 is, where they built the dump mm -hmm. in West Harlem. Mm -hmm. So, okay. Now, uh, here's another one. So this is also Abigail's work, and it's basically the same thing. Now, one way you read these kinds of charts is to say, here's a whole set of effects, different measures, and you look at how often, or the, just simply as a matter of numbers, how many results are significant. That's the red ones. So this is roughly about two out of three. And you don't get a two out of three pattern. If it was random, if the effects were random, you'd see it scattered around. They're not. So basically, if you look at the top one, which is a global measure of health, and you correlate that in Abigail's work on the citywide study, we get, she, she will, it shows basically uh, the, more, the higher the ratio of minority to white stops in a neighborhood, the higher the levels of poor and fair, well, unfair health. If you get down to the bottom, you see some measures of obesity. The one that really grabs me is the asthma results. So uh, this is all bad news. That's all I can say. This is all just bad news about the health indicia and the health effects of a policy of basically unregulated stops and unregulated encounters. If you go back to the corpus and you read the corpus of, of language uh, that's infused in all of our laws going back to the originalists. Uh, if you tell your friendly originalist, I'm sure there are several in the building, and you say to them, tell me in the corpus, what does search say? What do you, what's, how, do you how do you find the concept of search in the corpus? And the answer is, the word is accostings. So I don't know how you get from accostings under the common law to search and unreasonable suspicion under Terry v. Ohio. But you can understand that there's an ontology there that's worth paying attention to. Okay, so here's our work. This is myself and Joshua Yosha Legui, who's at Harvard. He's up for tenure in case anybody gets a letter asking for his uh, evaluation. <laughs> Give him a very strong evaluation. He's fantastic. Um, and what's interesting is the only result we get is on the upper left-hand corner. So what you're looking at is school test scores by age. So the ages are on the bottom. We start at age 9. We continue through 15. This is a standardized set of, of, of achievement scores, math and, language, math and English, uh, for all New York City school students. The older they get, Black kids, the lower their test scores become. It doesn't, what's really interesting is the gender, the absence of a gender effect. Why? Because the people who are being stopped are young black males. 
And this is what we get. Now, the nine-year-olds aren't stopped very often, nor are the 10-year-olds, the 11-year-olds, as best we can tell, may not be written down. But we do know about 13, 14, and 15. So these are fairly stupid effects. So we're mortgaging the future of people, of kids. We're mortgaging their mental health. And if the one thing that's important to bear in mind about this is that it doesn't produce public safety. We've done these runs. We've done these analyses. We published it in a journal called Plus One. I published it in the University of Chicago Law Review. We've published it all over. It doesn't contribute to, public, to, to safety, except in one circumstance. Now, think about law. Terry, Terry, Terry supplanted uh, Matt. Matt was probable cause. Terry was reasonable suspicion, basically, depending on how cynical you are, anything goes. Um, when we actually break down the stops, I don't have a graph on this, so trust me on this. When you break the stops down between those that look like probable cause, and you look at the concentration of those stops by neighborhood, versus the ones that are pure guesswork, what the Terry Court called hunches, um, the probable cost stops actually do produce a positive crime control effect. So one way to think about our data, and this is the book on South Chris that I'm in, on the Fourth Amendment that I'm, that I'm working on, basically is going to say, we made a terrible mistake on Terry. Now, there's a whole other conversation we'd have over lunch about Terry. Why Terry happened has to do a lot with the 60s, a lot to do with police killings themselves. Uh, and the, the officer safety rationale, et cetera, but I'll show you a graph on that in a second. Anyway, so uh, here's one part of the mortgaging. We're mortgaging their work. So let's talk about police killings. Um, everybody has this on their mind when you think about police. We think about Tamir Rice, we think about Michael Brown, we think about all of these cases. Uh, the one case where you really want to understand how it actually works on the ground is a guy named Saeed Vassell. It's a killing in Crown Heights in Brooklyn. And the Times wrote it up very extensively. Uh, Vassell, V-A-S-S-E-L-L, first name Sahid. And it's a horrible story about a mentally ill guy. And it's got all kinds of stuff packed into the story because it happened in Crown Heights, a gentrifying neighborhood. Sahid was well known in the neighborhood. Uh, he was crazy. He was, you know, he would poke around and he actually used to poke around and pretend he had a gun. So finally, one day he gets into somebody's, um, he, he, uh, he, he has an encounter with a, a young woman with a baby in a stroller. She freaks out. They call the police. The neighborhood patrol guys knew Sahid. He was fine. They were fine with him. They used to talk him down all the time. They'd feed him and talk to him. They liked him. The anti-crime guys, the cowboys show up. They leap out of the car, and within 10 seconds, they fired four rounds of bullets. Roughly within 10 seconds written up very extensively in a number of different outlets in New York City newspapers. But that's the other side of the coin from the Timur Rices, which are horrible mistakes. Racialized mistakes, for sure, but horrible mistakes. But anyway, uh, what this says is, if you actually paid attention to diversity in policing, then you would ameliorate some of the problems in police killings. And that's as simple as that. And this is basically what we're showing in these two graphs. Um, this is police killings. So on the left, you see data from the Washington Post database. Uh, there are about five different crowdsourced databases now on police killings. Uh, we're doing a project at Columbia where we're actually reconciling all of the information in each of the databases. It's painstaking, painstaking work, but it's actually important. Here we're just showing that there's roughly a thousand uh, killings a year for us uh, from 2015 to 2018, four-year period. So those are going up and up and up. That's a thousand. You can look at the the trend on the right side and the number of police officers who were killed. Now remember, Graham v. Connor says, anything goes. This is another example of 
situation goes. Graham v. Connor is one of the worst Supreme Court cases you would read because it basically said uh, officers can act under a split-second decision-making process even if they make a mistake, if they reasonably believe that they are in danger. So the indicia of danger, as in the case of Tamir Rice, uh, as in the case of C.P. Cassell, are really quite good. They're quite good. So he basically had a broken off piece of pipe with a soldering iron. That was his weapon. Uh, so that's going down. If you look at the trend line from 280 to 142, and then a real start, steep drop in 2017 down to 128, uh, they're not in more danger. And yet police killings keep going up. They actually flattened out. Uh, this is our analysis of the Washington Post data, and there's two things to think about here. And I'm sorry I don't have the, the red thing working on here, which would be helpful. Uh, I'll finish. Yeah. Um, so uh, if you look, at the, you look at the top line, that's the distribution. We look at the bottom four lines. Were they armed? Were they mentally ill? Were they both armed and mentally ill? Were they neither? Look at the percentage on neither. Rough, this is roughly 50% uh, higher than, the, than the, the raw percentage in the distribution of the data. These are unarmed people who are not experiencing a mental health crisis. And when we do the math on this, you get the same thing. Again, the way you read, let's read the top row. Top row is about five Without getting into it. David's giving me uh, notes to tell me to shut up. Uh, last thing, um, this is a study by Desmond Ang, who's at the JFK School, about the effects on school test scores of kids in Los Angeles. He mapped uh, where, the where, the, where the police killings of civilians happened. Then he drew circles using GIS technology, isolated the kids who lived within the circle, roughly a one mile radius, and looked at their test scores. And that's what you see on the right side. So the left side is before the shooting, the right side is after the shooting. So we're creating a generation of traumatized kids by everyday policing, whether it be in jaywalking tickets, or stops on the street, or police killings that everybody in the neighborhood witnesses. We're traumatizing and mortgaging them in terms of their educational outcomes, in terms of their mental health, uh, and we're not launching them off into a successful uh, uh, adult life. Okay, uh, the last thing, um, databases. So this is the new frontier. This is, um, there's a gang database in New York. It's completely it's private, we can't see it. The gang database in Los Angeles, you can sort of see it, you sort of can't. There's one in Chicago that the police actually, on their own self-investigation, just ditched. But this is what's happening when you translate the sort of uh, inchoate indicia of suspicion police action, once you're on the database, you're under suspicion. And that's when it happens. Uh, and just here's some of my things that are happening. This is a long fight because the Supreme Court is not on our side. And this we run up against the difficulty of litigation. Um, and there's something that we call willful racial blindside, a line that I got from the late Andrew Taslitz uh, about the way that the courts think about the data that we're presented here. So how we bring that into litigation and into community action are the next set of challenges. I'm behind on my environmental colleagues on this. 